welcome to the next episode. In fact, the inaugural episode in terms of our recording of um, uh, Better Place, which is what we've decided to call this series of conversations with international law practitioners, Better Place, uh, Real World International Law. Today, we have Yvette Zegenhagen uh, with us, the head of international humanitarian law of Australian Red Cross. Um, Yvette has been working in international humanitarian law. We're going to call that IHL uh, from now on, I think. Um, IHL for about 10 years or so with the Australian Red Cross, uh, a stint beforehand at the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva. Um, and before that, you were even a commercial lawyer um, specialising in litigation at a major Australian law firm. Um, I think that might have been your first real job after graduating from a law school, but we can hear about that uh, a little bit. You also do some amazing volunteering with the Australian Red Cross as, aside from your, your paid work, including, I believe, as a, a humanitarian um, officer looking into immigration detention programs, um, uh, in particular Manus and, and Christmas Island. So hopefully we can hear a little bit more about that uh, amazing volunteering that you're doing as well. So Yvette, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It's our pleasure. Um, so I've just done the formal introductions. I was, I was wondering how you introduce yourself. Oh, um, that's a good question. I think as a bit of a, an IHL nerd, um, at times I would describe myself as a bit of a failed lawyer. Um, couldn't, couldn't hack it in the, in the commercial world. And, um, I guess now not really a lawyer in the sense of, you know, taking on clients and giving legal advice, but more of in a broader legal education policy influencing type type role. So I'm not sure failed lawyer is the most positive way of describing myself. But I don't think anyone think else possibly, that knows possibly you accurate. <laughs> Oh, no, no. Um, all right. And, and just a, a little bit of the personal event as well as the professional. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, that's a tough one. It has to be something with chocolate in it, like triple chocolate with chocolate fudge and chocolate chips and just death by chocolate, probably. Okay. Yeah. You like yeah. chocolate. I, yes. yes. <laughs> is, is there some psychological insight that you're trying to glean from people's I think it's going to be fascinating. I can see the article now, you know, the ice cream <laughs> flavoured choices of international yeah. legal practitioners. <laughs> Psychoanalysts. Um, fantastic. Um, Yvette, so I, I, I sort of shared, again, the, your, your, the, the highlights of your professional CD, but was there a, a particular moment um, that kicked you off on your journey in international law? Um, I sort of, I was very lucky, like a lot of people, there's not a really clear career path into, well, I don't know about other areas of international law, but certainly not IHL. So I was very lucky in that an opportunity came up as I was looking to move into a different area of law and out of commercial litigation. Um, so it was more opportunistic taking on a, a short maternity leave contract in the IHL program at Australian Red Cross, and then just trying to make myself as indispensable as possible um, and I've hung around like a bad smell ever since but I think what really drove me to it was actually um, far more personal um, 
it was more that, so I had always had an interest in it in that my grandparents had come to Australia as refugees um, and had been uh, Holocaust survivors. And my grandmother in particular had um, started her law degree in Switzerland just before the war broke out um, and had wanted to, to do international law and was, was cut short. Um, and then towards the end of the war was, was marched out of a camp and fell, um, fell into a coma in a barn. And the first thing she saw when she woke up was people running around with red crosses on them, um, wow. basically nursing her back to life. So I think the red cross and, and what it means for me um, and the, the way in which laws have both failed people, but also developed and improved over time, um, was very dear to my heart. And I felt that having now then had the opportunity to grow up in Australia and, and pursue an education in ways that others, she couldn't and, and others around the world can't, it was a nice way sort of, of, of coming full circle and um, seeing how we can use the laws of war um, in better ways than we, we have in the past. Yeah, a beautiful story. Um, we've mentioned now international humanitarian law and you've just mentioned laws of war. I was just wondering if we, we just wanted to unpack what that area of international law is. Yeah, um, sure. In 25 sure. words or less. No. <laughs> <laughs> the elevator pitch for IHL. So it is, it is often referred to as the laws of war. So it tries to do two main things. It protects people who are not or no longer part of the fight. So that can include, people often think immediately civilians, but they were the last people to get formal protections under these laws. It also covers people like prisoners of war, um, military wounded and sick, uh, religious, military religious and medical personnel. Um, so a, a large group of people that aren't taking part in the fight. And it also places limits on the types of ways in which laws can, uh, wars can be fought. So war despite what you see on the telly is not a free-for-all from from a legal perspective there are limits placed on on how um they can be fought yeah um so i've got two follow-up questions what what does this australian red cross for for many people listening to this uh, might think of the blood bank might think of assistance to bushfire victims or flooding victims what does the laws of war have to do with australian red cross yeah, that's a great question. So we are often known as bloods and floods, um, but actually the laws of war are at the very heart and soul of the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement all around the world. So um, the founder of the Red Cross, his, his big idea was that there should be limits placed on the way wars are, are fought. Uh, and he created the, the first committee of the Red Cross in, in Geneva. Um, and lobbied for many of the heads of Europe at that time to sign the first Geneva Convention, which is really the, the cornerstone kind of building blocks of, um, of IHL. And from there, what's really interesting, this is where I say I am an IHL nerd in all senses of the term. Um, what's really interesting is international law is usually about how states relate to each other and their conduct towards each other. And IHL certainly does that, but it's also about individual responsibility and it puts the Red Cross movement into international legal documents. So the Red Cross is named in international treaties, the Geneva Conventions, um, and gives them a particular role to play in armed conflict. And through there, there are other international legal frameworks that set out a very clear role for 190 
to national societies around the world, including us, to promote the laws of war in our own countries. And the idea is that it's the, it's the basis upon which we were built over 155 years ago around the world. Um, but in order for people to respect and adhere to the laws of war in times of conflict, they need to understand them and know about them in times of peace. So in an Australian context, that's, that's the approach we take. Obviously, for many national societies that are working in situations of armed conflict, the, the role they play is quite different to what we do here. Hmm. Um, and laws and war, let me just, you know, the elephant in the room. Um, what the hell? Uh, isn't war the, you know, anything goes? I mean, you, you mentioned already, you know, on the television, there are atrocities, there are wars, there are conflicts going on, even as we speak. Um, a lot of um, not even disrespecting, just not knowing the laws of war. So what's the point of having these international law rules signed by a bunch of men in Geneva? Mm. White men in Geneva. Yeah. It wasn't the most diverse start to, to the movement. Um, so I think it's a really good question. And I certainly don't sit here and profess that the laws of war solve all our problems and create this utopia situation in armed conflict. It is the darkest situation you can find on the planet is, is um, a, a conflict zone. So what they seek to do is they put baseline minimum standards in place. And that, that's not to say that everyone complies with them, but I, I challenge you to find any law where every citizen complies with them. I mean, we've got people that are in jail for tax fraud and all sorts of things. So there's no thinking of the law as a panacea for any problem I think is, is flawed. What we need to do is say, okay, well, what, what norms do they set for most people? So I think when we and one of the issues we, we have in IHL is that people deciding not to harm civilians or a military decision not to target a hospital, they are made every day, but they're not what makes it onto the news. So I think often when laws are working, we don't hear about them because they just hum away in the background. It's when the laws are broken in, in any set of laws um, that, that we start to hear about them. So um, I would say they're not perfect. They don't fix everything. But we need to keep in mind that we are far better off with them than without them. Mm. And for those that do have to rely on them day in, day out for, for their own protection, um, they, they would certainly argue that they still play a really important role. But I think they're... They're one of any number of tools in a toolbox in terms of trying to create those glimmers of, of humanity in, in a very, very complex and traumatic um, situation. And are there, are there sort of like um, major challenges that, that, that you've got your eye on in terms of creating more of those glimmers of humanity in conflict zones, which is a really beautiful sort of way to look at it. Are, are there sort of challenges to the implementation or the realisation of IHL in, in today's conflicts? Yeah, I think there's a number of them. And some of them, they, they present challenges, but also potentially opportunities. And I think a good one to, to describe that is the way in which new technology is being used in, in conflict. So um, weapons that are um, becoming more and more autonomous. So you're taking human decision-making out of, out of the, um, the weapon systems. So on the one side, that 
creates a real challenge because how do you hold people accountable if something goes mm. wrong? Um, how do you preserve that kernel of, of human responsibility mm. and accountability when you're having to make decisions, like, literally life and death decisions? Um, on the flip side, they're able to respond very quickly. They're able to be very precise um, in the way that they're, they're used. So perhaps they, there's also opportunity to, um, to limit the amount of civilian harm that is, is created with more precise um, autonomous systems. So, so they're really complex issues we have to grapple with as, as they evolve. Cyber warfare is another one. Mm. Um, I think the other thing that's really difficult and there's no, I don't think there's any clear solution to this um, is that wars, first of all, are protracted. So it's not like they're over in five years. People grow up and are born and live their entire lives in, in conflict zones. Um, they're spanning decades. They're often in urban and densely populated areas. So it's very hard to distinguish between military objectives and civilian objectives and the impact on civilian infrastructure is massive. Um, and the other thing is that the types of people that are fighting in conflicts are becoming more and more complex. So, and the types of people working in armed conflict is becoming more complex. There's more businesses and private companies that are providing a range of different services in armed conflict, foreign fighters. So people that, um, you know, jump on a plane in Sydney and end up in Syria, for example, um, fighting wars, there's fragmentation of armed groups that might not necessarily know that IHL exists or don't think that it speaks to them um, and relates to their, their own moral codes and, um, and perspectives of, on the world. So how do we, you know, the strength of IHL in the past has been that it's really been something where everyone can see themselves and their own values enshrined in them, regardless of your religion, your culture, your background. And that's starting to, to be challenged a bit. So how do, we, how do we talk about IHL in a way that resonates with someone, whether you are in a state armed forces or whether you are a foreign fighter from Europe that's joined ISIS? You know, it's, they're very different conversations we have to have in order to maintain that, that baseline of humanity. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. That's a, a, an amazing list of challenges and opportunities. And, and also, I think, really interesting reflection that some of those ch larger sort of conceptual challenges um, about the, the, the claim of universal uh, truth that lies at the heart of IHL norms um, and that being sort of critiqued and assailed by various forces um, and, and, and rising to that challenge is something that's perhaps reflective of the broader sort of global conversations that we're having at the moment. Fascinating. So if I may switch back to the personal, what keeps you going, Yvette, in, as an individual? Like you just presented an amazing array of challenges and yes, opportunities. So there is bottle half full and bottle half empty, I guess, depending on one's perspective. But how do you keep that perspective? How do you keep 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 going um in the face of so much suffering in particular and and, dis, and disrespect of your area of international law so i would say that i have a much easier job talking about the laws of war in australia than my colleagues do when they're you know in the international committee of the red cross when they're trying to get access to detention facilities in you know any number of conflict zones around the world so 
first of all, I'm very conscious that I have a very privileged position in terms of, of how I get to talk about and use the laws um, and think about the law from the comfort of Australia. So um, there's no hardship there that I'm having to, mm. to grapple with every, every day. Um, I think for me, I think you have to be at your core a bit of an optimist. And I don't think you need, I don't think you want to be naive, but I think you've got to be a glass half full and feel that at its core, humanity is good um, and that it is worth it is worth the effort and that you're not just speaking into a void. I think one of the things we've tried to do at Australian Red Cross is really focus our efforts in areas where we feel like they, that we can have a tangible impact. So looking particularly at Australians that either, and how we influence Australians that either um, interpret, apply um, the law, so decision makers and, and, and government, or uh, the judiciary, um, but also... And military Australia. officials? Yep, and military, yep. yep. But also people that have boots on the ground in conflict zones. Oh. So just because we're in Australia doesn't mean that we have no ties to armed conflict around the world. If you look at, um, for example, the extractive industry or our military or our fairly large humanitarian sector in Australia, um, there, there are a number of Australians that, that are operating in, in conflict settings. So how do we really influence them and focus on their behaviour and their um, their perceptions of, of what IHL is and how do we embed that into their thinking when they're then um, deployed into those sorts of situations. So keeping it, I think, relevant and focusing on the impact, the end impact that we want to see um, keeps us going. But I also think I get to work with a fabulous group of people with... Um, you know, I have a wonderful team. I'm connected into an incredible movement, 191 national or 191 other national societies around the world, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and drawing, and we've got over 150 volunteers in our program as well who bring an incredible depth of expertise and knowledge to this. So I think also just the richness of, um, of conversations and, and expertise and knowledge that we're able to, to gather and work with to to pursue our objectives is is really invigorating and really inspiring. Hmm. Hmm. What um, what career accomplishment are you most proud of? So many folks in international law, we don't blow our own trumpets too often, and we don't reflect on the past. I feel like you're also not just optimistic, but always future looking. But yeah. Let me put the, push you to think about what is Yvette Zegenhagen's um, proudest accomplishment, big or small, whatever it might be, um, in a professional I'm, I'm, sense. I'm struggling not because I'm trying to sift through lots of them. I'm trying to <laughs> So I think there's, there's one, I guess, um, from my professional, like, perspective at Red Cross and one from my volunteering one. One's very... Um, policy driven one is very operational. So I guess from, from where I sit as the head of IHL, it's actually not related to IHL per se. It's more about um, the way in which we are trying to make the movement more inclusive and diverse. So 
the movement, um, when I say the movement, it's all the National Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the International Federation of the Red Cross, that is our sort of governing body, and the International Committee of the Red Cross come together every two years to, um, to develop institutional or movement-wide policy and, and positioning on things. Um, and one of the meetings, it became very apparent that through a number of elections that were held, that there was still an incredible lack of diversity within the movement, particularly from a gender perspective. So I was able to work with um, sort of a, a core team of, of two other people, one from Sweden, one from the International Committee of the Red Cross, to draft up a resolution that was then put to the entire movement um, that provided a concrete commitment to, to increase um, gender equality at all, at all levels of the movement um, and within all components of the movement, including the highest decision-making body, which is called the Standing Commission. So um, obviously gender is only one, one type of diversity, but I think it, um, it has opened the door to a lot of broader discussions across the movement about how we truly make ourselves open for all people, how we harness what should be our greatest strength, which is our diversity in ways that are really meaningful and bring ourselves well and truly into the 21st century. So that was something I was really proud of because I can see that it's actually making a difference and there are changes happening. So that's, yeah. that was great. Um, and from a volunteering perspective, I, I should say, I don't want to overstate my volunteering with the immigration detention monitoring team. I'm not reading too much into it, but I haven't been asked to go, go on one of their visits for, for probably about a year and a half now. So um, I think, you know, my, my time with that program isn't as recent as, as um, a lot of others. But um, one of the things that I think I will always, always remember, um, again, as someone who's had extended family find people um, through the Red Cross Tracing Service is doing a detention visit on Manus Island and delivering a tracing message to a gentleman in um, the detention facility who did not know if his wife and children had reached Australia safely. They'd been separated on different boats. Um, and I was able to tell him not only had they made it safely, they'd been re um, released into the community and I was able to give him his children's school reports and school photos and he hadn't seen them um, at that point for several years. So that Amazing. I think will always, always stay with me. Yeah. And, and you mentioned just, I mean, beautiful. Uh, you, you mentioned the word tracing. Some folks listening to this may not quite understand that, but, but the Red Cross has for, for, for decades been involved in relinking families during and after, after war. Um, and and yeah. allowing family members to work out what has happened to other family members. Is that, yeah. that's the tracing service? Yes, yes. And again, very, very genesis of um, the Red Cross movement and, and built in as, um, mm. as, I guess, built into the Geneva Conventions and, yeah. and obligations um, under those treaties. Yeah, uh, really beautiful, and and just uh, that's not really a law thing, as you as you said, but it's a a glimmer of humanity, isn't it? Um, it is, and to... I think again, it's not the it's not the law that you know. I don't go, you know, we don't go to Manus Island on the basis of of a legal um, document, but actually, it's it's the the role that the law has played in developing that 
that obligation of, of all that right of families to know the, the fate of their loved ones, the role of the mm. Red Cross under international legal frameworks to facilitate that. So the law is there as a bit of an invisible tool along with other things that allows us to then, um, then do that kind of work. So mm. what I love about IHL is that, yes, I'm often very much in the, in the policy education space, but there's no doubt in my mind that this is a very practical set of laws Mm. that people take and you don't go parroting off, you know, particular sections of the Geneva Conventions, but on a very basic level, they, they translate into very practical action. Mm. Beautiful. All right, let me take you to the macro level. There's two questions on that. Um, yep. Does international law work? Well, I would say yes, because I think it would be hugely demoralising to think that I am... <laughs> giving my, my um, professional life to something that doesn't. Um, I don't think it always works well, but I think it, it, is, it is the best that we've got. And it's our job to build up and highlight the bits that are working mm. and to, to ensure that its um, validity and its credibility isn't eroded to the point where it stops working, but to also critically examine the bits that don't work and to be brave and courageous in thinking about how we fix them. And the Red Cross can only do that so much. We're not the ones that own the law. It's governments and, you know, it's states that need to do that. Um, mm. And there are, there are um, swings and roundabouts with, you know, geopolitics in terms of the appetite to do that. But um, I think there are there are certainly things you can point to that that don't work well or could work better. Um, we're not working in a perfect world. We have to be pragmatic, but um, part of our job of, at the Red Cross is to keep poking and prodding and and pushing for for some of those things to improve. Mm. And uh, a little bit of crystal ball gazing. Um, for the next, what, what do you think the, the, what's the future of international law, you know, for our kids and our grandkids? What does international law look like in 25 years? Yeah, I think it'll be, I don't know. It's so hard to tell. If I was being really bold and ambitious, well, not even ambitious, if I was being a bit out there, I would say that we should look at the role of cities as well as states and what that means for international law. Um, even if you look at, you know, the way that in Australia, but also in the US, the role of um, state governments has played in, um, in responding to coronavirus, for example, um, it, it's been really prominent. So what, what will happen with the rise of cities and, and leaders in cities that want to shape um, things that link into international law? I think also in terms of thematic areas, I reckon climate change and space are the two areas that are going to really um, require a lot of thought and development and could yeah. really shift the way we think about international law. Yeah, fantastic. Or All we right. could be here in 20 years and it's exactly the same as it is now. Uh, but, yeah. um, <laughs> Elon Musk won't let us be in the same position in 20 years. I think we might <laughs> be on, we might be thinking of interplanetary law um, in 20 Maybe. years time, perhaps if he gets his way. Um, all right. Well, let me just round off then if, if I may get back, back to the personal event. 
um, and your personal journey in international law. I was wondering if you have a, a favourite international law moment uh, from the past, something that just, you know, you reflect on it and it just makes you smile. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, oh, I'm going to need to think about it. That's such a good question. My follow-up isn't any easier. I think, so is it, is it one that I've, I've been alive for or one No, that... no, just uh, you, no? You, you're a well-studied person. Um, uh, you know, the history of international law. We spoke a lot about, you know, bottle half full. I assume some of what gives you that hope is some moments in the past. Mm. Um, so I think there's, I like, I mean, I guess as Australians, we always like back the underdogs, right? So I like the stories where there was sort of, oh, will it, won't it work? And ultimately, um, you know, the law has, has developed and succeeded in spite of what people might have, have thought would happen. So I guess there would be two in particular, I guess the... And they're, they're fairly recent, to be honest. But um, one would be the establishment of the International Criminal Court. So um, having had friends and colleagues who were, who were part of those negotiations and just describing the feeling in the room and looking up at, um, you know, this board that would show sort of the, the name of the country with a red light or a green light as to whether or not they yeah. were um, going, to, going to support the Rome Statute and thinking, you know, oh, this, this may not get up and then just seeing this sea of green lights. I think, you know, without being in the room, hearing those experiences just kind of gives me chills. Yeah. Um, so that would be one. And a, and a similar one would be the nuclear weapons treaty that was, um, that was um, negotiated in the U, UN General Assembly just a couple of years ago. So who would have thought in in a world where people are backing away from multilateralism, where nuclear weapons are still seen as so politicized and so mm. linked into national security that you would have over a hundred countries that are just voting in support of a treaty to ban nuclear weapons, just mm. phenomenal. Mm. Um, and I just think, you know what, if we can, if we can chip away at something like that, mm. then anything is possible. <laughs> So those are two, uh, two events that, that um, uh, are some of your inspiration. I'm wondering about people. Do you have any heroes, international law heroes, that you draw inspiration and energy from? I, I do, but I think I would embarrass a couple of them by, by naming them. <laughs> so I think... Hmm. So one of the things I love about being part of the movement is that I am constantly surrounded by people that are way smarter than me that are grappling with really wicked IHL problems on a daily basis, but at their core never lose that humanitarian softness. I think that you need to hmm. think about the law in a way that that places people in armed conflict at the centre of your thinking and the centre of your um, mm. 
decision making around how you how you apply the law. So I don't know if there's any one person that I would single out, but I would absolutely say that there are particularly a number of women within the Red Cross movement um, that I watch who have dedicated decades of their lives to, to this area of law. And I think it's their collective impact that I look at and think that that is a girl gang I would like to be a part of. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, if you look at the, the ICRC at the moment, they've got their first um, female and first non-Swiss director of international law in their 155 year history. Who happens, um, who, to, be who happens to be Australian. So I think, um, so that's Dr. Helen Durham. And she's someone that I think has inspired not just me, but generations of Australian law students and law legal practitioners um, to go into the law and the, the um, team that she has built around her as well. And, and across the movement, the legal mm. advisors in other national societies. Um, I think it's that collective um, effort and that collective not just brain power, but compassion that mm. um, I find really inspiring that I, I like to be able to draw upon. Beautiful. Uh, you mentioned, you did mention one name, despite your reticence. Uh, last chance on that. Uh, only, any other, only any other shout outs to individuals? Heroes of well, yours? I, think... I don't think they'd be embarrassed. I think they would be wonderfully humbled and chuffed. <laughs> um, look, I, I think there's a, there's a number of them, even, I mean, I, I'm not going to say Henry Dudant, but um, I think... Do you have now the obligatory Red Cross. You have mentioned his name by name in a Red Cross interview. Exactly, well done. Exactly. <laughs> but but cert certainly um, the, the foresight that, that was, and the vision of the um, people that established the movement is, is something that's quite inspiring. The, the lawyer that was um, part of the first committee of the Red Cross predicted that there would be a need for some sort of international criminal court to enforce IHL, you know, a hundred years before mm. the, the um, international criminal court was established. That's pretty impressive. Um, I also like, and I wouldn't call them heroes, but I, I really feel that there are a number of people in the IHL space who come at this with very different perspectives from me um, and who think about the law very differently, but I draw a lot of, um, I guess, intellectual curiosity and, um, and determination from, from hearing the way they approach the law mm. um, and thinking about ways that I can then mm. creatively think about, about things in, in my own mind as well. But yeah. I don't think that there's, there's a lot of people in IHL that I think um, are doing brilliant things that, and I, I draw inspiration from all of them. You know, yeah. people within my own team, our volunteer base. There's, and I, I say that with all sincerity. Um, there are a lot of brilliant minds that, that pour their efforts into this area of law. And I don't want to um, place one above the other because I, I'm very lucky in that I can, I can look across a, a huge range of people. Fair enough. But we'll let the record show that you did put Helen above all others must anyway no just just kidding um um a few times in this interview if I, if I may just go back to um something on a more serious topic you've mentioned gender uh and you've mentioned the girl gang um that you want to be uh, a part of that you are a part of in terms of ihl has gender and your gender been 
um, a hindrance to you pursuing a career in international law? No, I don't think so at all. So um, I don't think so because I've always had strong female role models, female um, bosses. Actually, one of the things I, I struggle with in, in the IHL program is getting gender balance in, in the IHL team when I'm doing recruitment because we've got so many <laughs> more women in our team than men usually. Um, so it's not that it's been a struggle at all. I think within the movement, there has been a bit of an issue with um, women in senior leadership positions. But um, I think I've, I've mentioned gender a couple of times, but I guess one of the things, again, beyond IHL per se, but just more broadly for the movement that I'm really passionate about is diversity in all its forms. Um, because I think as a movement and as the world is shifting and changing, we must be as inclusive as possible. Um, because if people don't see themselves in, in the organisations that they're wanting to join or that, that are trying to support them and their families, then, um, then we're, we're failing in, in my view. So I think it's more of a, um, a desire to see diversity more generally um, embedded into the movement. And I don't mean, you know, let, let's recruit more women or let's recruit more people from a particular ethnicity. I mean, this is a movement that I love dearly and I hold very dear to my heart, but it has been set up in, in a very Western construct. And so mm. how do we really acknowledge that and see all the good that it has, but also say, well, that, that doesn't fit with everyone's view of the world. And how do we actually mm. create, systemic change to make sure that we can mm. um, reflect really deeply the diversity across the world. Mm. Well said. Um, changing tax back again. Your best yeah. movie, your, fa your best movie you've seen on international humanitarian law. Oh, I thought you were just going to ask for my favourite movie. And no, no. A Disney movie. Well, well, come um, on, tell, tell us your... Well, no, not Frozen, please. Your favourite no, movie, frozen. okay, if you want to volunteer that, but your favourite, your, the best movie you've seen on international humanitarian law or, or sort um, of, you know, pop culture sort of reference to IHL, your favourite. So the one I would say is not actually strictly IHL, but it brings up a lot of related issues that I, in a very easy way to discuss with people, and that's Eye in the Sky. So not necessarily IHL in the purest sense of the word, but it, um, it gives you the opportunity to talk about um, targeting, about some of the moral issues that might sit behind, you know, targeting your own, civilian, uh, your own citizens, for example, um, the use of technology. And um, so it's, it's, it's not an armed conflict. So in that sense, it's not an IHL movie, but I do think it's a really good um, conversation starter. I think and one Alan of the Rickman's most... last movie ever. Oh, I, I know, and I love Alan Rickman. Mm -hmm. um, I also uh, was—I don't know if you've seen Hotel Rwanda. Oh, many, many, many moons ago. Um, yeah, that, that's a movie that has yeah. stuck with me. Yeah, yeah, and if that's not a cry mm. again for 
um, doing better and where mm. I guess we see the worst of, of the human condition, not just from within a country, but from mm. a global community. Yeah. Um, and, and again, the, the, um, the way in which um, history can, uh, the historical context within a country and a colonial context can, can manifest and bubble and boil into something, I think um, is, is really, yeah, mm. quite something. Cool. Mm. Um, well, um, we're pretty much out of time. I, I did just want to um, ask... Um, uh, one final question, I guess, which was if you wanted to just look straight down the barrel and if you if you had any advice to students of international law that 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 want to walk in your footsteps and pursue a career in international law, what advice would you give them? I would say try and be as flexible in your thinking as possible. There is no one direct way into this sector it's becoming more and more competitive and and difficult to get into so keep a very open mind um, about when opportunity what opportunities might present themselves um, and don't try and over plan things because i think um you've just got to be able to be nimble and jump on opportunities where mm. where you can and your career path will probably look more like this rather than like this, which is what you would expect if you're going for clerkships and, and following a career in, in commercial law or private practice. Awesome. I have just one final task, Yvette, for, for, for you today. Um, it's sure. just a, it's not a question. It's a complete the sentence. Okay. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. International law is... International law is... Worth protecting. Awesome. Thank you. And on that note, um, I just wanted to thank again Yvette Zegenhagen, Head of International Humanitarian Law at Australian Red Cross. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great questions. And we will see you around. Yeah, see you soon. <laughs> Better Place Talking International Law is produced and edited by Keith Hibbert, advised and supported by Neil Grant, and hosted by Jonathan Colebe. Music supplied by Ian Post. The Better Place team thank RMIT University for supporting this project, and we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we work. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present, and future. <laughs>